And so when people storm the Capitol, you realize it's not the first time that white folks have violently worked to protect their white privilege or the second or the 15th time. It's a thing that happens very often in American history. So we are still fighting the same fights because we are actually still fighting the same fight. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Ludovic Blaine, an activist who runs the California Donor Table. That table is a statewide community of donors who pool their funds to make political investments in communities of color so they have the power and resources they need to elect people who represent their values and needs. Ludovic has a career full of experience in the progressive ecosystem. We talked about his route to the California donor table, about what's been happening in California politics, and how California running ahead in demographic change is a model for the nation. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Ludovic Blaine of the California Donor Table. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Ludovic Blaine. I'm the currently the director of the California Donor Table and California Donor Table Fund based in Berkeley. I, at California Donor Table and the fund, uh, align individual and institutional donors to invest in communities of color to win progressive elections and policy battles, uh, and more broadly to build power for progressive communities of color in the state as a way to have a more progressive state. Previously, I've, I've worked in a variety of different positions promoting racial justice, combating white supremacy on issues like environmental justice, media justice, campaign finance reform, community organizing, and a lot of other issues nationally here in California and uh, previous to that in my home state of New York. And I am originally from the Bronx and proud of that as well. Where did you grow up in the Bronx? What kind of family? What was, what was your youth like? I grew up in the northern Bronx in what had previously been a a white ethnic community uh, where those folks were moving out as black and Latino folks were moving in. So it was a community in transition, working class. Some of my family's from Haiti, so uh, also second generation immigrant and worked to like balance being an African-American and Caribbean-American in a community that was that was changing and also being a Caribbean American in a black community where there were more and more non-African Americans joining the black community there. When you think about that time with a community that was changing, are there lessons that you learned then that you carry still? Sure. One big piece of it, so I'm from the Bronx and I'm really honest. Uh, one, One big piece of it and one of the biggest differences between the neighborhood that I grew up in in the Bronx and many of the white folks that I interact in California with now is almost all the white folks in in New York and the Bronx, they knew that they were not from the United States. So they actually knew that they were immigrants. They either knew the immigrant in their family or they knew stories of the immigrant in their family. And so there were some ways where they were able to connect with people of color immigrants because they had that experience. They had family members who, quote, spoke English funny or maybe not at all. Um, Their food was pungent. Like, so there was a bunch of xenophobic stuff that kind of couldn't really happen within those white folks because it would imply their own family members. I didn't appreciate it as much then, but in retrospect, I really appreciate that. Another piece of it was the extent to which Black and Latino folks, uh, communities, you know, had their own cultural silos, 
but also very much came together and and viewed ourselves as a as a spectrum of identities and cultures rather than siloed. Um, and that's something else that I that I really appreciate and that showed in culture um, as well as in politics. That makes sense. From looking at what I can find about your education, it seems like you did some time at Cornell and some time at City College in New York. Correct. I graduated uh, from high school really young, um, uh, went to Cornell for about a year, uh, did not enjoy it there, did not do well there, uh, did not feel supported. There was something about being in a, uh, a way, in a non-multi-generational community. It was very hard for me to be successful there. Ended up at City College of the City University of New York in Harlem. Really loved it there. Loved the the fact that they were all kind of different folks who were my classmates, um, race, ethnicity, class, age. Loved that they were folks who had all kind of different experiences, both domestic and international. Uh, and then I started my activism uh, there, joining uh, NYPIRG, the New York Public Interest Research Group, uh, doing what later became called environmental justice work. I spent a summer canvassing for Coperg in Colorado. Gotcha. Um, and uh, did you canvass at all, or was it more in the organization part? I, I did a little canvassing, but I was a, a student member um, and ended up being a student activist there. Did a lot of work on on uh, limiting tobacco, on campaign finance, on government reform, uh, uh, some environmental justice issues around the the sewage treatment plant in Harlem. You know, student rights, tuition, stuff like that. Um, and then uh, got on the board there and was the, I guess, was the vice chair for a year and was the chairperson of the board of directors for two years. What was it that pulled you into that activism? Uh, there was a personal connection. With the, the piece that I directly initially connected with was on tobacco. Um, I had a number of different family members who had really negative health impacts from smoking. Um, and NYPIRC helped me understand that to kind of tie together the the pieces of information, some of which I knew already, but not all, around scientists knew that it was bad for a long time. The people selling it knew it was bad for a long time. Uh, they pushed government to allow them to keep selling it, even though folks knew that it was bad for a long time. They used some of their profits to buy off black and Latino and white liberal infrastructure, and that they had lots of corporate strategies targeting black and Latino communities to smoke more and more of the worst, like mentholated cigarettes and things like that. And so that resonated with my family, where I have uh, my father who had had um, throat cancer, various family members who had had other cancers and, and asthma and other things uh, almost definitely related to their smoking. And so that was the initial thing that drew me in. And then as I stayed and I got a better understanding of how various privileges uh, intersected money race, corporate power interconnected to prevent the government from doing uh, good things for the majority of its people. What does We Interrupt This Message? So We Interrupt This Message was one of the first what is now called media justice groups um, in the country in the, uh, was at the late 90s, early 2000s. That was a, what became a national media advocacy group. We would do communications work for Black, Latino, and API-led racial justice uh, and racial equity groups help them not just do PR, getting into the press, but help them to reframe uh, messages that were prevalent um, in the press because merely having your quote in a bad article doesn't really promote justice for communities. And so in addition to the uh, PR and comms work we did with a lot of uh, community organizing groups, uh, in particular in California and New York, but also around the country. We also did media accountability work, um, getting impacted folks like young people of color to uh, research how uh, the New York Times uh, metro section was covering young people of color and crime, education, and other issues, kind of spotlighting how they were all kind of racist dynamics, um, and then actually meeting with the editors um, to share with them information that they might not know and then work to hold them accountable to make it better. I do remember one campaign that we did having a, a group of uh, teenage kids of color looking at the metro section of the New York Times. Then we ended up meeting with the editor of the metro section 
upon meeting, he thanked people for coming, leaned his chair back, put his feet on the desk and said, I hope you're here to learn because your study isn't completely wrong. We're not racist. (laughs) And his entire argument was not data driven as was the report because the report actually looked at the articles and the words in the articles and, and was, uh, some subjective, but also lots of quantitative analysis. And his pitch was just how they were not racist. And so that struck me and the young folks there uh, around how white denialism is a a very, very strong ideology that enables many, many white folks to not take responsibility, even for their own racist actions, never mind for how they are kind of complicit in larger racist systems. So, so that was the kind of work that We Interrupt This Message did. I really uh, enjoyed that work. One group I don't know a lot about, is it pronounced Demos? The Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I've had multiple people mention it to me, but I don't really know it. You worked there for a while as associate director, I guess. Tell me about that organization and, and your role there. I was associate director of the democracy program there. There's been various waves of progressive think tanks. So that was in the same wave of groups like the Brennan Center and a groups like that. I was working on voting rights there. I ended up uh, leading the work on election day registration, state passing and implementation of election day registration. And in my tenure there, we were able to push a few states to do at least partial election day registration. Uh, And then I uh, led our efforts on basically snipping the link between the criminal justice system and the voting system. So in particular around people who have been convicted uh, of felonies and the extent to which they can't vote for various amounts of time after that conviction. So what's otherwise called felon disfranchisement. Uh, So we worked with the Sentencing Project and a bunch of other groups, ACLU, Brennan Center, NAACP, et cetera, to spotlight that those issues were happening uh, and then work with advocates, especially formerly and currently incarcerated people to change understandings about whether felon disfranchisement is a just thing to do, uh, and then to work towards greater enfranchisement, both de jure, meaning legally changing the actual state laws around that, and then de facto, making sure that registrars and criminal justice systems stopped miseducating folks and telling people who were legally eligible to vote that they were not eligible to vote. So we would do policy, research, advocacy, direct work with organizing groups and impacted communities around the country. How frustrating is it that that we're still fighting the same fights that we've been fighting for decades and decades? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the felon disfranchisement laws in many states, they were passed uh, right after Reconstruction and there were explicit debates about the best way to disfranchise black men. They came up with those laws to do that. Since in in most states only men could vote, men who beat their wife could get disfranchised, but men who killed their wives, that was not um, disfranchising because white men were almost never convicted of beating their wives. They would every now and then be convicted of killing their wives. So almost the only people who were convicted of beating their wives actually had nothing to do with whether they were beating their wives, which they all should have been convicted for that. But it was actually uppity black and brown men and their wives. The male would be convicted because the family was actually active doing social justice work. So in some of the minutes of the meetings, the legislators had that level detail of conversation about how to structure this disfranchisement law so that it would have as the goal stopping black men from voting. And so to have that happen, to, to be working on that issue 115 years after those conversations <laughs> was maybe initially shocking, but then you realize, yeah, systems maintain themselves. And so when people storm the Capitol, you realize it's not the first time that white folks have violently worked to protect their white privilege or the second or the 15th time it's a thing that happens very often in American history. So we are still fighting the same fights because we are actually still fighting the same fight. Ugh, it's exhausting, honestly. New Progressive Coalition, uh, another thing that you did there in the 
mid 2000s what was that uh, that was a group in the beginning of folks trying to figure out how to use the internet to raise money a few folks realized that many people who give um this is maybe less the case now because the internet is pretty broad and you can google and find potentially a group that you're really excited about but before then people were just giving to whatever group actually ended up touching them um and whether that was small, medium, and large donors, that was true. So the idea was to create a platform that spanned tax statuses, C3, C4, PACs, um, that would allow folks online to find a set of groups that they that actually matched their interests. It was all progressive, um, that matched their interests, and then encourage them to give to that set of groups with the assumption that they would give more to groups that they were actually deeply aligned with than to whatever group they randomly came across. And the idea behind that, that moved the big donors who were funding that was to decenter, to, to make actually what we now call small dollar contributions, to have more small dollar contributions in the progressive C3 and partisan in infrastructure and ecosystem um, so that it wouldn't be so reliant on big donors. It started to work. There were a couple of presidential candidates who in those years actually raised a lot in small dollar contributions. So NPC was a helpful proof of concept that that kind of work could actually happen. Although the building a market and one marketplace for all those groups to live in, that ended up not being the way towards small dollar contributions, but I'm glad to have played a role in sussing out what might and might not work. It's really hard to draw people to any location like that and to be an intermediary on their decision-making. Right. What'd you do next? Uh, although, ironically, foreshadowing, that's what I do now. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, figured out a, a better way of doing it. But um, uh, after NBC, I started up an online group called Stop Dog Whistle Racism that was leading up to Obama's campaign, noticing the now we have lots of explicit bias, but that we, there was both explicit bias and lots of implicit bias that was going into how journalists and voters were perceiving that candidacy. And so we spotlighted the, a lot of the racist frames in the media, intentional and especially what might be more unintentional frames, and worked to reverse them and then helped advocates play key roles in making sure that in their advocacy, they were uh, not just rebutting, the, that certainly they would not be reinforcing the frames, and that they would rebut the frames, but that instead of repeating the frames and rebutting them, they would actually just promote more accurate frames um, so that there would be other frames available to understand Obama's candidacy besides a racist frames. Um, so that was my uh, next uh, work. Was it always the intention to end that at the end of the year, or why did you move on from that? It's really hard to get a new thing going, I know. Yeah. Um, it's a good question. In retrospect, we totally should have kept doing it. But like many folks, we thought he won and he was able to beat down a bunch of the frames. And um, we thought that he would take some responsibility for him and his campaign and his online army and everything would take more responsibility for doing that. Obviously, in retrospect, they totally stepped back from that. And that was one of the things that enabled the Tea Party to, to um, expand unfettered. But really, that's why we thought that uh, having a black guy as president, that he would, he himself and his appointees would deal with that head on, and and they decided not to. So th then you you worked on something with closing the racial wealth gap initiative. I was really excited to uh, get to understand the racial wealth gap. Part of that was understanding the difference between income and wealth, and the role that in a lot of other of my work whether it was environmental justice or other stuff, where the easier to get data is income, the harder to get data is wealth. Uh, and so sometimes when we would be doing campaign finance work or trying to do racial justice analysis of campaign finance or environmental justice or other issues where the class marker we had was income, it would be pretty consistent in what you would think, that lower income communities have more negative outcomes than higher income communities. And then when you overlay race, race is usually more and a more important marker than class when class is income. 
But then looking at the wealth piece, you realize that that there's two groups of people who have very low income, very poor people who have low income and low wealth, and then very wealthy people who have low income and high wealth because they're living from their wealth, not earned income. And so that might explain some of the weird outcomes that in my career I had seen in, when, we were, when I was doing different analysis. So so worked on that. That was mostly at the federal level, building support for things that would close the racial wealth gap. And then looking at other slices, gender wealth gap, immigrant wealth gap, any number of other slices, but with race at, as the center of it. Uh, so that that really helped to connect a lot of the work that I did up until then, all of which had a clear race through line, but I realized it also had a very clear wealth through line. And race and wealth are, as we know, um, integrally, they are not two separate things in an American context. They are integrally connected. You next went to Progressive Era Project? Yeah, I've been at the Progressive Era Project, what was then called the Progressive Era Project and Color of Democracy Fund uh, for the last 11 or so years. Uh, it's now called the California Donor Table and California Donor Table Fund. Ah, so um, I didn't realize it was the same name for all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Was that in existence when you joined it or were you part of starting it? How did that work? So it was founded by a handful of donors uh, in around 2005 as they were starting up other uh, national donor groups that were often big tent, um, progressive donors, liberal donors, transactional democratic donors. Uh, and as they were starting up those other entities, they realized that they were from the same state. They were all explicitly progressive and they all centered race in their strategies, including their funding strategies. And since they were all from California, which has you know a very high uh, percentage of people of color, they realized that they could practice that kind of alignment, giving alignment to build progressive communities of color power here in California that would both be the way to win here in California, but also spotlight the way to win in other states and nationally. So they started about 05, 06, 05-ish. And then I came on board in 09 as the first full-time staff person. Uh, And at that time, uh, I was tasked with figuring out some key regions in the state and building power in those regions uh, by identifying what, what the communities of color were in those places, figuring out with them what a both nonpartisan 501c3 strategy would be around building broad-based power, as well as a political strategy that would allow them to develop strategies to beat the worst candidates and elect progressive, mostly people of color. Um, to shift those regions. And 11 years later, uh, we have a place like San Diego, which was always a heavily Republican, uh, heavily oppressive place for people of color, elected folks like Pete Wilson and other people like that, uh, Daryl Issa, although he's still there, but to office. Uh, and this year is a, is the first time in a long time that the Board of Supervisors is majority people of color and majority progressive. San Diego City which was the biggest city headed by a Republican for the last decade, now has a liberal, gay, Asian, Latino mayor with a solid uh, liberal to progressive city council. And so the investments of the last decade have been key to be moving places like San Diego, Orange County, the Inland Empire, Central Valley, towards not just a partisan shift from Republicans to Democrats and a racial shift from mostly white Republicans to having some people of color Democrats, but also an ideological shift where we moved from right-wing white Republicans to liberal to progressive people of color and white Democrats. And so making sure that we did that full shift, that it wasn't just parts of that, has been our key strategy and what we work closely with our allies on. Who are your donors? So our donors are a set of high net worth folks. Initially, they were mostly from the Bay. We now have uh, donors in LA, San Diego, and, uh, and across the state. Uh, we have about 40 donors who contribute consistently. In that way, I'd say to some of the boring year-round work that just needs to be funded and happen. And then we have a broader set of donors who invest when there's uh, key races happening in different parts of the state. Are you funding candidates directly? Are you funding organizing groups? Who are you funding? 
So through various mechanisms, we're able to fund everything from uh, nonpartisan work through some groups to direct investments in candidates to uh, investments in independent expenditures. What's the scale of this? How, how much money are you able to raise and spend politically? So uh, in the 2020 cycle, we uh, directly raised about uh, more than $5.5 million to those groups and candidates in many ways providing the operating support for those groups and the networking for them, uh, they're able to then raise multiple times of that from other donor networks that we've introduced them to. Hmm. And when you're talking about allies, are you talking about those other donor groups? Are you talking about other progressive organizations or both? Sure. So, so we do work with some other, uh, donor groups, um, most of which our uh, donors help to uh, found, whether that's uh, groups like the Democracy Alliance or Women Donor Network or Way to Win or Movement Voter Project, um, Groundswell. So there's a, a number of uh, national networks that our donors have also helped to found. Then there's uh, allies you know, in-state, whether it's progressive parts of labor who can invest politically. Sometimes they invest in non-political activities whether it's foundations who obviously don't invest in any political activities, just nonpartisan work. And then there's sometimes small, smaller kind of donor networks here and there that, that we work with. What do you like about the work that you do? I really enjoy the work going to places um, that have been ignored by donors like San Diego Orange and the Empire Central Valley and helping them brainstorm, strategize, plan and execute and then evaluate the big picture thinking that they're able to do because there will be money to do it. So in those regions, there's folks who are very, very strategic, but their strategies have to be relatively small because they're confined by the amount of money they can raise to do it. And the money that they can raise to do it is not just confined by their skills. That's actually not the limiter. It's the fact that most donors don't live in those places and many donors are not thinking about those places until they become transactional hotspots. So the number of donors who care to invest in Orange County in 2018, when there were four seats up, or the Central Valley also in 2018 and 2020, or the Inland Empire in 2014, the number of donors who want to give in that year when it's shiny is very high. But getting those regions to the place where the Democratic House majority went through those regions of California in those cycles, getting those regions to that place took a long time and lots of investments in non-sexy, non-shiny activities. That's the work that really excites me. California looks politically quite different than a lot of the country right now. It's changed politically a lot since uh, Pete Wilson was governor, say. What have you learned from the change that's occurred and that you've helped be part of that we can apply nationally? A few things. First is um, demographics is destiny, but there's multiple potential destinies. As there are more and more people of color in a jurisdiction, the white folks in that jurisdiction will respond. The question is how do they respond and what power do the people of color have over whether it's just the white responses or whether it's people of color also playing a role in steering that jurisdiction. Pete Wilson, Prop 187, all the racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-labor propositions are very much like Trump now. Latinos in particular, but also black folks and, and Asian folks and a set of white folks response to those white supremacist elected officials, it was both Pete Wilson and Dan Lundgren, the AG, as well as the propositions, their backlash to that is what pushed the Democrats into the majority in California. And so when you have, and that was because folks did it themselves, and then as those communities were organizing themselves, there were various foundations and individual individual funders who funded some of that work to build power at scale. So that played a key role in moving California democratic. So that's the first lesson is 
we need to, and many of our donors have been the lead investors and folks like Stacey Abrams, the black women who are doing the work in Texas, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, and all kinds of places. And merely moving to democratic power is not sufficient. You actually need to make sure that they are progressive. Three things, Democrats, representative of the communities, demographically and progressive. One thing that hit me right before the white supremacist stormed the Capitol was the first leak that came from the Biden administration after it was clear that Warnock was going to win and Ossoff was going to win was that they were going to be appointing Merrick Garland as the attorney general. Now, that was very disappointing for me because black voters are why Biden won the primary. They are why he won the general. They are why the Democrats came close to a majority on election day. We are why Warnock and Ossoff won and Democrats will have a majority with them and a black woman that black people helped to elect Kamala Harris, both as vice president and in all of her previous races, right? So black folks have delivered Biden in every single way. And for him to appoint an attorney general who was nominated to the Supreme Court because Republicans would vote for him, someone who was a prosecutor, that's an example of any old Democrat is not enough. We actually need to elect progressive Democrats because when the Democrats win but don't deliver on enough reforms to actually have people's lives change, that foments both groups like the Tea Party and the lack of a progressive response to the Tea Party. Because after all that work electing Democrats, when they don't deliver, what results is not apathy, it's disinterest, but it's it's a knowledgeable disinterest. It's not apathy unknowing. It's actually, I did all that work and then nothing happened, I'm not gonna do it again. So, so that's an example of the circle that we need to interrupt is people of color turn out, save the country, and then who is um, kowtow to are not those base communities, but are other, other communities that are white and conservative. I don't think Merrick Garland is a conservative. I'm wondering if when you look across Biden's appointments, they're certainly way different than, I don't know, if Stacey Abrams had been elected president or Bernie Sanders had been elected president. But when you look across them rather than picking one out, do you still feel that way? Yeah, I didn't say uh, Garland was conservative. He was picked to get a set of conservative votes, Senate votes. And when you look at the analysis, he uh, would be around the center on the Supreme Court. I would say that's conservative. I was more talking about him as attorney general now, less so than his appointment in that political moment to the court. Yeah. Right. But he's the same human being. So, so sure, looking across the appointments, some are great. Deb Holland for interior is great. Some of the deputy AG appointments, Vanita Gupta, fantastic. And some of the other appointments are fine. We will now see how Merrick deals with the white supremacist insurrection. And I hope that the administration is able to be as race explicit as the right has been. What I'd say is the lesson from California is we have um, democratic super duper majorities. Our state legislatures between 70 to 75% Democrats. And so when things don't pass, it's not because Republicans vote against it. Because if Republicans vote against something and the Democrats vote for it, the thing will pass. So the reason we don't have a more robust health care system or education system or environmental protection, all of those pieces is because we have too many moderate Democrats who then swing the Democratic caucus. That was also true in New York where you had the Democratic State Legislative Caucus caucusing with Republicans. That was true for a while in Washington State. Part of the lessons from California, which would be a lesson from any blue state, is that nationally, donors nor broader set of voters should assume that the number of elected officials in the Democratic Caucus is the same as counting the votes for any progressive bill. 
And what we need to be shooting for is increasing the number of votes for progressive bills, not just the number of people in the caucus. And so that's the biggest lesson from California. That was a lesson that donors didn't get when they believed Rahm Emanuel in the last Democratic administration, that the cheaper, easier way to a Democratic majority in the House was through blue dogs. So they invested in his strategy. That strategy resulted in not having a majority of votes, even barely for Obamacare, without we had to throw women under the bus to get the last couple of votes. Um, and so the lesson from California for the country now with tight Democratic majorities and for places like, for new Democratic trifecta states like uh, Virginia and soon to be Democratic trifecta states like Arizona, is that getting to Democratic majorities is, is a step towards a goal. Uh, and once you get there, then you need to actually be holding Democrats accountable for governance. And we need to go all the way through the process to make sure that Democrats are actually delivering progressive, delivering policies that actually change lives for the better. Can you explain what you mean when you say that the Justice Department has to be as race explicit as the Republicans are? White conservatives are very explicit about race. Uh, they talk about race all the time. That was even pre-Trump. Trump, Trump uh, did it almost as a caricature where he would say, well, the black people are going to, we're going to have a platinum plan for black people. Like, so he actually would fully articulate it. It was no longer implicit. They were extremely explicit about it. Um, most white liberals will use any other lens besides race, whether it's economic saying that what the right has is economic anxiety or saying things like soccer moms, by which they mean not women whose dads played soccer. That would be mostly people of color immigrants. They mean women whose kids were the first in their generation, the first in the family to play soccer, white moms, right? Or NASCAR dads. So there's lots of euphemisms that white liberals use um, to talk about race. First, they try not to talk about race, and then they use euphemisms to talk about things that, that are about race. Um, so the conservatives are, are you know, totally explicit. They're trying to create a white country. <laughs> They're pretty explicit. The DOJ, various parts of the federal government have been warning us for about eight years of the threat that one of the largest threats the country faces are white nationalists. Now, it wasn't mostly Democrats um, uh, invisibilizing that. It was Republicans. But we're going to need race explicit engagement in a in the to oppose the burgeoning white supremacist movement so, so i think what that looks like is um race explicit framing someone like anat shanker does that work really well race explicit framing around why corporations are supporting campaigns that that exacerbate racial disparate racial impacts because that's the best way for them to elect people who will pass policies that have them make more profits. So we have to not just talk about economics, but talk about the, the extent to which the right fans racist, not racial, but racist flames in order to achieve their policy goals, some of which are racist and others of which are just about making money but always, they always at least have a tactic of racism to achieve their money-making strategies. Although for some of them, their strategy is racist and their goals are racism, not just their tactics. I've had Annette on the show, and I, and I think she's quite persuasive about the way she wants people to think and talk about these matters. If you look at 2020 with the... I don't know what we're calling the, the uprisings over the summer and the Trump fall and winter here, and, and also the, the election results, which were, you know, I think we went backwards in California in certain regards uh, in the Congress. What's your lens on this year and these matters? I'd say that the California results, I'd say, were mixed. Uh, the easy to look at ones are the congressionals and the state initiative results, both of which were disappointing. I would say keeping 
find that um, that many other Democratic candidates, including the incumbents, were milk toast and not very inspirational and not that good. And amongst other things, they were disproportionately white. There were more people of color running as viable Republican challengers than Democratic challengers and incumbents. In other words, in Orange County, there were two API women who won, and only one of the people they beat was a person of color. In LA, Mike Garcia won for re-election, who's a Republican, against a white person. So actually, the insurgent challenger Republicans had more people of color than the Democrats they were running against. And women across the country, this was a pattern too, right? Right. So anyway, so that happened at the same time that there was both unprecedented Democratic turnout, but unprecedented also Republican turnout, and incredibly disproportionately white. But in some places, those white Republicans voted for not non-white people in, in a California context. So anyway, so at the, at the initiative level, it was very disappointing. At the congressional level, it was pre- pretty disappointing, although I wrote a media piece about this. We went from around 80% congressional seats held by Democrats in California to a little bit higher than 70% Democratic seats. So the country cannot just keep on needing to squeeze more and more Democrats from California in order to have a Democratic majority. Yeah, I mean, in a certain way, you had to bounce back a little from 2018. It's similar to when, when Democrats are telling black folks, voting for Democrats at 92% is not high enough. Some of the rest of you are going to have to do something. But uh, local races, unprecedented sets of progressives elected, whether it was in Contra Costa, in L.A. Some of them beat Republicans. Some of them beat Democrats. So a progressive district attorney in L.A., the biggest one in the country, won. Holly Mitchell, one of the most progressive and effective elected officials in the country, won on the Board of Supervisors. The entire sets of jurisdictions in San Diego, our second biggest county and our second biggest city, went Democratic. Places in Orange County, like Santa Ana, went Democrat to progressive. So in local races, there were unprecedented networked wins powered by local groups and groups like the Working Families Party to have a set of progressive wins that both bode well for progressive policy outcomes now and to build a pipeline. The other thing about those Republican Congress people were almost all of them had been elected to another office. I think none of the Democrats had ever held elective office before. So the Republicans had a pipeline of local electeds that they were injecting into the federal level, local and state electeds. And we had a hodgepodge of people who were hedge fund managers or managers of other corporations or lottery winners. It was kind of a a hodgepodge of, of folks and the Republicans were running proven previously and currently elected officials to run for Congress. So, so that we are starting to stuff our pipeline with progressive, a diverse set of progressive local electeds bodes well for our future. How do you see the, the insurrection and its aftermath here? The whole awful end of the Trump presidency. The thing that I would, that, that I am cautioning California progressives and the broader set of Democrats to pay attention to is there is already a recall effort against Gavin Newsom, funded almost entirely by the right. There's some evidence, there's been a couple of rallies where the insurrectionists, other sets of super conservative folks and the recall folks have co-organized rallies in Sacramento. If the right electoralizes their movement through the recall, that can have huge negative impacts. We have actually already been through that with the recall of Gray Davis. So this would not be the first time that that happened in a California context. And that came about you know, because of driver license fees, but also allowing non-citizens, uh, undocumented people to get driver's licenses. So it wasn't just an economic piece. It was also a xenophobia piece. We need to make sure that they do not electoralize this. Um, and one of the ways that they might is through a state recall. Is there any realistic fear that they could be successful in recalling him? Uh, Well, first, there's various steps of success. So they already have a million signatures. That doesn't mean that they're vetted, but they they say they have a million. They need a million and a half. If they get a million and a half, that's a success. (laughs) I mean, a million is already a success. That's one out of 40 
total people in the state signing that. So getting a recall on the ballot uh, would be a success because then it would force, at that point, you're going to have a recall. And as I think you know, when you have the recall, you also have a, a replacement election attached to it. So if the recall is successful, someone is elected there. So then that forces a set of Democrats to run just in case the recall is successful because it's all on the same ballot. And then in a state, and then the person who gets the plurality of votes wins. When do they need to get that million and a half signatures by? I don't think that there's a time, exact time frame for it. Our election is next year. So I think it just needs to be sometime this year. So it sounds like they have a decent shot at getting there. Right. So, it's, so uh, you know, now it's now nobody has vetted their signature. So maybe they're totally lying and they don't have a million. But if they have a million, then yes, they have a big shot. Um, and so part of what we need to be doing is making sure um, first that Gavin governs better. Every state is messing up on vaccines because the federal government is the one who's supposed to be helping people do that. But Florida, uh, California is one of the worst performing states in the percentages of vaccines given versus what we have. So he needs to shore up his actual performance in a variety of areas so that what we don't have is the right connecting with the left. People pissed about the lack of vaccines. Some people pissed about not opening schools. The people pissed about not opening businesses. If he's dining with people in a restaurant. Right. With a, yeah. And then him not appointing a black woman to the Senate. So there's lots of pieces. So we need to make sure that, that it's not just that the right doesn't electoralize the work, but that they're not able to that left concerns about Gavin are actually addressed. It's not that they're ignored, but actually he does a better job at that so that there's no left meeting right for the recall. Um, so that is a huge concern for us. And that's actually a national concern because if, if there is a recall election against Gavin Newsom in the state who is an ally to Kamala Harris and from the same state as her, right, the VP, if there is a recall in the largest democratic state against Kamala Harris's friend, that will dent the Biden administration's momentum and will also dent her credibility. Which gives them all the more reason to push it, right? Right. Because you could easily imagine Trump or any nationally people electoralizing and nationalizing that recall. Yep. Yep. And then you got, and they got to spend money on it. You got to, yeah, it's just. Right. Yep. Right. It strikes me that you are not done with your work in California. Is this something you think you'll be working at for a while? Are you where you want to be? Yeah, I'm, I'm um, learning lots from the efforts in the key regions across the state, both what they're doing there and how they work to tie that together statewide and the lessons that we both draw from other states and what we can share. It's exciting to have the kind of victories to elect it progressive district attorney in Contra Costa and then San Francisco and LA and be teeing up to elect more in 2022 um, to be working to make sure that we have a broad set of progressive elected officials backed by a broader set of progressive groups where we are able to shift from being, which is a lesson for the, that we'll need to do at the country level as well, shift from being totally accountability focused Right. When you have somebody like Trump or any number of the other bad folks, they're not governing with you at all. Pretty much everything they do, you're going to be opposed to. That is very difficult. It's also easier to do that than actually progressively governing. Because once you have governing power, you have a million things you can actually do and you need to pick amongst them and maintain your majoritarian coalition moving forward through all those challenging decisions. So having the practice of doing that in both our state-sized regions where, you know, LA County would be, I think, the seventh largest state in the country, something like that, or had even San Diego would be one of the, one of the larger states. Um, so having practiced doing that time and time again in our state-sized regions and then doing that in our country-sized state is something that uh, both we need to do with 12% of the population, but also those are lessons that we have an obligation, California has an obligation to share the right did that, nationalizing our anti-tax and xenophobic politics driven by in-state Republicans in previous generations. And now the left needs to do that with California politics and policies in this generation. So I'm excited to, to 
be a part of that uh, working and learning uh, group across the state. Ludovic, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? One piece, um, what has been key in my work organizing donors to fund this work is that those donors do not center themselves. You know, we mentioned my work around closing the racial wealth gap. The reality is that wealth is held almost entirely by white people in the country. And a lot of the work that needs to be done costs money. And that work needs to be done by what the current demographics of the country looks like. Meanwhile, the wealth is held by folks who look like the original set of folks who stole land and labor from people of color. Yeah. So, so the key part of my work is getting those donors to, to encourage them to not center themselves and to invest in people who don't look like themselves or mostly their family or their peers. I really appreciate, while some of our donors are like Steve Phillips, who wrote Brown is a New White, a few other, we have handful of other donors who are people of color. Most of our donors are white. And so their ability to not center themselves and to realize that they do not have the answers. And so I appreciate my donors being able to do that. And that is a key part of my work, encouraging that and then bringing that to scale with a broader and broader set of donors. Is that hard? There are certainly donors who want to take credit and be very prescriptive about their dollars. Yeah. So, you know, there's a set of donors in Silicon Valley who that is what they do. We have a set of donors, including some in Silicon Valley, who understand that actually it's not just that that's not the moral thing to do, that is the least effective way to do it. So they're trusting you to to make these calls. Right. Yep. That's a pretty good place to be, I think. I'm loving the work. Well, it's been an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? No. Great, great talking with you as well, Nathaniel. That was Ludovic Blaine. Ludovic is at CaliforniaDonorTable.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.